Hey crew, before we get started today and get into a fun and fascinating discussion about Tribbles with Paula and Terry, I wanted to remind you that Paula and Terry's many books about Star Trek and other movies and TV shows are available on Amazon. From the Deep Space Nine Companion to Star Trek 101 to Star Trek The Magic of Tribbles, which is basically a print version of what we're talking about today, they're all available for purchase on Amazon. So if you're looking for further reading, click through the link in the notes for this show to get to Amazon, and when you're there, a small percent of every purchase you make will go to support this show at no extra cost to you. Paula and Terry have an eye for detail, or more than one eye, several eyes, and they've had unfettered access to the world of Star Trek for years, so their books are informative and comprehensive, and they're a must-have for diehard fans. I also wanted to announce that Enterprising Individuals is going on the road. We will be in Riverside, Iowa next week, June 29th and 30th, for TrekFest 34. Riverside is, of course, the future birthplace of James Tiberius Kirk, and for over 30 years, the people of Riverside have been throwing a bash to celebrate Starfleet's most decorated captain and shortest-serving admiral. The theme of this year's fest is Khan! And the featured guest speakers are John and Maria Jose Tenuto, who are former guests of this show, and they are the foremost Khan experts that I know. We'll be reporting from the fest, so this might be a good time to subscribe to our Facebook and Twitter feeds. If you haven't already, they're at E-I-S-T-P-O-D on both Facebook and Twitter. And you can find us on Instagram while you're at it, also at E-I-S-T-Pod, because we will be definitely taking pictures from the fest. All right, that's enough business. Enjoy my talk with Paula and Terry about trials and tribulations. Let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and here's a suggestion. If Paramount is looking to pay tribute to another classic Trek episode, the 50th anniversary of Spock's Brain is this year, it'd be a no-brainer. I'm joined on this episode by Paula Block and Terry Erdman. Paula is a former senior director of licensing for CBS Consumer Products and formerly the co-editor and judge of Pocketbooks' Strange New Worlds competition. Terry is a former motion picture publicist who created marketing campaigns for such films as Star Trek V, Willow, and Aliens. Together, they are the authors of many reference books about the films and series set in the Star Trek universe. They're also fiction authors as well, having written several Pocket DS9 eBooks. the most recent of which is I, the Constable, a noir-themed DS9 novel featuring Odo. Paula and Terry, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Glad to be here. Hi, people. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Glad to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today, we'll be talking about Trials and Tribulations, the sixth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Of all the props, aliens, and creatures in the Star Trek universe, there are perhaps none so memorable as the humble Tribble. Beginning with their introduction in David Gerald's original series episode, Tribbles have gone on to appear in other Trek films, Trek movies, and have become emblematic of the love Trekkies have for their favorite show. When the 30th anniversary of the episode rolled around, Paramount decided to pay tribute to the triple phenomenon and the endurance of the original series by producing an episode of Deep Space Nine that would see DS9's crew thrust back in time and into the events of the trouble with Tribbles. 
But this wouldn't be a few scenes of new footage inserted among the old. A talented team of writers, engineers, and effects artists pooled their efforts to produce an episode that not only homages the original series, but was a showcase for what technical effects had become capable of since Trek's early days. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Paula and Terry, every time I have guests on, I always ask how they first discovered Star Trek, how they first became a fan. Okay, um, I'm really old. That's what I always start out with. All right. <laughs> Which means I saw Star Trek in its first run while I was in high school. And I liked it immediately. I think the first episode I actually remember, I may have seen The Man Trap before it, but the first episode I actually remember was Charlie X, and I just thought that was fabulous. I loved sure. the ending of it. It was so sad, you know? Yeah. And and it just made me want to watch more, because I thought, gee, this is science fiction with an emotional basis. Right. So I watched it um, until it ended, and then I went away to college, and kind of nothing happened for a minute, but like, I think within my second year or third year of college, suddenly it went into syndication. Right. And that was brilliant because it was on every day, you know, so I would get to go into one of the rooms with a television set in my dorm and watch it, you know, along with the one or two other geeks. <laughs> and, you know, and I watched it a lot and got to know it well and found out at my school there was a Star Trek club. And those people seemed to know even more than I did about Star Trek because they had discovered Lincoln Enterprises and were right. collecting slides and they could identify an episode by just looking at the cant of Spock's eyebrow, you know, <laughs> so... And, you know, I was really impressed, and I started doing fanzines with them and going to conventions and working at conventions and all of that until it was in the 1980s, and I decided, okay, enough of that. (laughs) And then eventually I got sucked back into it by, um, I fell in love with Terry and moved to Hollywood, (laughs) moving from my New York job, and... uh, Found it, and a year later, there was an opening at uh, Paramount Pictures for somebody, and the the qualifications were someone who has a publishing background, which I did, right. and who knows a lot about Star Trek. And I thought, geez, this is the only job I've ever had that I was qualified for. <laughs> you know? And the rest is kind of history. <laughs> did they ask you about Spock's eyebrows to get the job? That would no, seems like... <laughs> because the reason they needed somebody who knew a lot about Star Trek was because they knew very little about. Star <laughs> okay, Trek. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, what about well, you? Well, meeting meeting Paula was fortuitous for me. Um, we'll be there in a second. Um, I was. I'm even older than Paula, and um, I happened to be playing guitar in a rock and roll band with a full-time gig in a nightclub in Fargo, North Dakota, and every night the the drummer in the band would sit at the bar and stare at this TV set that was up behind the bar, and then we started, I don't remember, it must have been 7.30, when when was Star Trek first on? Probably. And uh, we had to start playing, so we'd get on stage, and like once a week, the drummer would say, stand over there, I'm trying to see the TV, and he'd look across the dance floor, across the pool table, across the bar at this little tiny, you know, 12-inch TV set up back there, and one day I said, what are you watching? And he said, it's a science fiction show, and it's got this, these alien creatures, and it's really good, and I always get to see the first half, but not the, the last half. So he started explaining it to me, and, um, but it took 
a few years before I really understood what it was. I knew the word Spock, and I knew "Beam Me Up, Scotty." Right. And then, um, then when it went into syndication, I I said, "Oh, I remember when that was on behind the bar." And I started watching, and I really, really liked it. But um, and so then I went to the you know the the motion picture and 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 uh, the, the the first uh, four movies. And uh, by that time, I was working as a publicist for 20th Century Fox Pictures, Mm -hmm. and one of the executives there left and went over and became an executive of Paramount Pictures, and she she called me and she said, we're going to have a Star Trek movie coming up, will you be the publicist on the film? And I got hired to be the on-set publicist, the unit publicist on Star Trek V, Mm -hmm. and uh, just out of nowhere, with that little bit of knowledge about Star Trek, um, suddenly I found myself on a private airplane flying up to Yosemite with Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> right. And um, I needed to know more about Star Trek than I actually did, just from, you know, I had seen The Voyage Home twice in the big screen and such. Sure. But um, right there was Paula Block. And so if I had a question, she knew all the details. And um, I don't know, we just became a team. Sure. His, his in-house researcher. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I had an insight. I had a an instant encyclopedia right at hand. It was wonderful. <laughs> yes, even before my Kakudas. <laughs> right. Yeah, Paula. I have a lot of friends and guests on the show who got their start in writing Trek Lit by being published in Strange New Worlds. Yeah. Uh, in your uh, former role as a director of licensing, were you working essentially as like a type of editor for Tie-in Works? Yes. Um, and it wasn't just Star Trek, but that was the bulk of the publishing coming out of sure. uh, the licensing department. We were basically responsible for tie-in products for any motion picture or TV show that someone wanted to make a product based on. Okay. So I was in charge of publishing, so I got to do all magazines and books and comic books and whatever. Eventually, uh, role-playing games and things like that when those got invented. Okay. And... Uh, I even got a staff eventually because there was too much stuff for just me to do. But um, So I was in charge of basically not editing the books so much as reviewing them for content. Okay. And, and it would make me a little bit nuts if I couldn't correct grammar flaws and things, but that was up to the editors at the publishing house. So if it was really, really bad, I would just send them a little P.S., could you have the copy editor take another look at this? Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> when you two collaborate, do you gravitate to an editorial role? Uh, no, not really. Well, we edit each other very oh, okay. severely. Our writing style <laughs> is kind of unusual. Okay, yeah. tell me about we, it. We were, we were both English majors, ah. so we both understand sentence structure, the use of the verb, the et cetera, you know, all of those things, punctuation. We're, we're both really, really good at it. But what we will do, like, um, on all of the behind-the-scenes books that we've both written on, and actually even though my name is only on the original ones, Paula was always there. Mm-hmm. And then on our uh, recent fiction, one of, we'll, we'll choose chapters, and one of us will write a chapter and give it to the other one who will do a lot of work on it and hand it back, and the first run, run will say, but that's not what I meant, and change it back again. And after we pass it back and forth three or four times, suddenly we look at it and we'll say, by golly, it's done. Yeah, so we both really take an editing role on it. 
How did you get your start in in working on reference books for films and t- TV shows? <laughs> well, this is a big story. Yeah, well, let me start it <laughs> just to say I was the contact to the editors. I knew all of them. Uh-huh. And one of them one day said, at Simon and Schuster. At Simon and Schuster Pocket Books Division. Uh, at the time, they had the exclusive right, uh, rights to all book publishing for Star Trek. Mm. So one of the editors called me up and said, you know, um, we're going to do a Deep Space Nine companion based on that new show that's starting up. And we talked about it, and I said, well, I can't work on it because I work for the company, and that would be considered a conflict of interest. Right. Um, and he says, well, your husband's a publicist. He writes a lot of press kits and stuff, doesn't he? And I said, yeah, he wrote the one for Star Trek V. So I sent that off to him, and he really liked it. And he called up Terry. And so Terry got into the biz. Yeah, I, I had been writing uh, ad copy and press material on motion pictures for I don't know, 10 years by this time, you know, I worked on a lot, a lot, a lot of motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, everybody liked my writing, but I'd never written anything longer than maybe, I don't know, 20 pages, you know, a couple thousand words. A press kit. And, uh, you, know, a pre- <laughs> you know, production notes, a press kit. And, uh, but, uh, but Kevin, he was the editor at the time at, um, at um, Pocket. Pocket. He said, um, let's do this. So they um, introduced me to the marketing department in, at Paramount Television, and they walked me over and introduced me on the set, and I started just hanging out watching Deep Space Nine being shot. And within, I mean, these were such wonderful people. Within four or five visits to the set, you know, within a week or so, um, I found myself hanging out, you know, with... The, the whole cast and crew wow. and um and it was just it was such a thrill to be there so i spent the next i guess six and a half years literally living on the set of deep space nine every time i possibly could watching everything that they did and i tried to write it all down and uh put, put the book together and uh and it was published but funny in the middle of it one day, um, Kevin left, start, left uh, Simon and & Schuster, and Margaret Clark took over as the pocket editor of the Star Trek material. And she of called the nonfiction. Me, of the nonfiction. Yeah. Sure. And she called me and she said, put aside the Deep Space Nine Companion. I want you to write a how-to-produce Star Trek book. And so I spent the next few months writing, along with Paula. Paula jumped right in with me. Um, the, um, Star Trek Action which right. is a big hardcover coffee table book. And I was about a little ways into Star Trek action. And Marco Palmieri, who was another editor over there, called and said, hey, we need a, um, a companion book written to the movie Insurrection. And can you do that right away? So I took five weeks off of, of um, action, wrote The Secrets of Insurrection, and then finished the action book, and then went back to the Deep Skate Base uh, Nine Companion. So I wrote three books with Paula. I can't leave her out of this. <laughs> sure. Wrote three big books all at once, never having done it before. It was a trip. Yeah, but, like but they got to depend on our stuff because um, writing nonfiction is a real different animal than writing fiction. Mm-hmm. 
And so they'd had some uh, nonfiction writers. You know, they had Alan Asherman a long time ago, and they had Larry Nemechek sure. uh, for the Next Generation Companion. But then they needed somebody extra, and so they got us, and they really liked our style on it. Sure. And uh, our template on the Deep Space Nine Companion was to use the TNG Companion, but kind of on steroids. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you certainly have a lot of books now uh, published between the two of you. Uh, I call out Star Trek 101 as being particularly good. And uh, Star Trek Costumes has some beautiful photos of costumes from the original series um, and beyond. Yeah, Star Trek Costumes, uh, Paula has to take credit for most of the of the photography. She got on the phone and contacted places like the Smithsonian Institute and the Oxford Library and the Margaret Herrick Library at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and TV Guide and every place else and negotiated with them to go through their archives and find old photographs of stuff that we couldn't find anywhere else. And then um, we wanted to take pictures of you know, Paramount doesn't own any of that stuff, any the costumes anymore. They right. were all auctioned off years ago. So um, Paula, with uh, John Van Sitters at um, at CBS and now, Marion Cordry, and Marion Cordry, they they pulled together um, who owns some of the costumes. Actually, were able to borrow them, rent some mannequins, and uh, hire a photographer and set up lights and took photographs and. It was a very big job, and and I I credit Paula with just being right behind that. And I credit the guys at CBS Licensing for, you know, helping us out and setting up all that photography. You know, plus we spent three weeks down there looking through everything they already had in their archives. Yeah, (laughs) you you would think that, gee, uh, you know, Paramount, for 50 years they've had all these pictures, you just pull out the one. Nope, they don't exist. It was very hard finding a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, maybe it's changed now, but back in the day, you hear all the time about how they would uh, tape episodes and then they just reuse the tape like they tape over old uh, episodes thinking, well, nobody's going to care about this. And oh, so yeah. people are. Well, I think that was that was a little earlier. That was like in the era of Johnny Carson and, and you know, uh, sure. Steve Allen, that type of thing. With Star Trek, they did have the originals and they had stuck them in a vault. But uh, the stuff they were distributing were copies of copies. So, you know, the stuff Uh, you would see on those reruns were getting pretty threadbare. And uh, actually, the Trials and Tribulations episode helped inspire them to pull the originals out of the vaults. And that was when they got the idea to do the... um, the remastered stuff. Sure. Because they used they used one of those old prints to do the Trials and Tribulations episode, and it was so good yeah. that they said, well, we got it. This would be a good thing for us to sell. <laughs> uh, even before you wrote the, the Magic of Tribbles, your oral, oral history of making uh, the episode, uh, you were no stranger to Tribbles. Uh, the Tribble Handbook uh, came out in 1998. How'd that come oh, about? Oh, well, no, that, that spun out of it. No, the... the <laughs> The the book and the, it came out before the right. before the one the, the the book the magic of tribbles um, once again Margaret Clark called and said set aside whatever you're doing you know the deep space time companion at this point sure and uh, and she said I'd like to uh, turn out see if you can turn out a book about just a little topical piece about this one episode because it's so you know special. So um, I raced over, I spent three weeks, I interviewed all of the writers, all of the visual effects guys and such, 
transcribed the tapes, which is what we've we've left out about every one of our books. Yeah. I you do these interviews and then spend hours and hours and hours transcribing <laughs> sure. and transcribing. Yeah. <laughs> and um and um we so we wrote the book The The Magic of Tribbles real fast. And then uh, Margaret took it to the sales department at Pocketbooks and the sales department said, you know, we don't think we can sell this uh, let's see if we can make a toy. Yeah, to they go didn't al- think they could sell enough copies to make it worthwhile. Right, I they see. talked to the to the various bookstores. You know, the the, the in, in those days it would have been Scribner's and Borders and and um, Barnes and Noble and and none of the salesmen wanted to buy more than a copy or two for each store, and it wouldn't have paid off. Okay. So the sales department at Simon at Pocketbooks said, uh, "What if we made a little toy tribble and attached it to the book?" And Margaret loved it, and everybody. They started into that, and then later on they said, you know, that it would be too expensive a package. Why don't we make a pamphlet to go with the Tribble and make the book instead of the book being being major and the toy being secondary, make the toy major and the book secondary. Oh. And w- without us even being involved, they did the little the little pamphlet about Tribbles attached it to the toy. As I recall. The little booklet about Tribbles, um, basically it was all the sidebars that had yeah. been planned for the tri- uh, the magic of Tribbles. Right, book. that's what Margaret did. She just pulled out the sidebars, <laughs> sent them to me, okay. and said, "These are these okay? Uh, so the question is, which came first, yeah. the magic of Tribbles <laughs> or the Tribble itself? And it's literally the chicken and egg question. At this point, you can't say which one was, <laughs> was the cause of the other. Well, I can vouch for The Magic of Tribbles. It is uh, very informative, and it's clear that uh, you talk to just about everybody, it seems like, uh, in putting everybody. that together. Everybody. <laughs> when I was interviewing people on the set, you know, for those six and a half years that I lived on the set of, of Deep Space Nine, if I would walk onto an empty soundstage and see some, you know, non, you know non-dialogue employee of the backlot of Paramount Pictures standing on a ladder painting, changing the color of a wall, I would, I would interview him. <laughs> I interviewed so many. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I interviewed a thousand people for that, for that book. Sure. And uh, I, I just love doing it. It's really fun. Uh, speaking of interviews, uh, you were both interviewed for the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind. Is that right? Terry was because oh, I Terry couldn't was. make it down to uh, I couldn't make it down to California at the time. We sure. had two elderly dogs who needed oh, okay. who needed care, and uh, <laughs> I said, "You go because you were actually on the set every day, and everybody's more familiar with you." So, sure. and it, I I had not seen some of those people for many years. Well, I'd imagine. And um, when I walked into the uh, to the little room that they had at Paramount Pictures, they were on the Paramount lot shooting. These interviews, um, Ira and uh, Ira Bear, the executive producer of Deep Space Nine, and uh, Adam Nimoy, who was one of the producers on it. Just, they, I mean, they greeted me like we were dearest old friends and had seen each other yesterday. It was really, <laughs> it was really sweet, and uh, they interviewed me for over an hour, asked a bunch of questions. I brought up some things that they said, "Oh, we're glad we said that because we'd forgotten about that." So made me feel good and. I'm really looking forward to seeing this documentary when it comes out. I maybe didn't hit the cutting room floor. <laughs> we'll have to find out. Well, and they also, it, it made us feel really good. They said that having the Deep Space Nine companion 
helped make that documentary possible because, oh, imagine. you know, you don't remember everything that right. happened 20 years ago. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, everybody there said, we all have a copy, but they're all so torn up and, and wrinkled and dirty and the coffee stains and everything. <laughs> and uh, I had taken, we have a couple of them still in mint condition. I had taken one, one with me down there so we could take a couple photographs of it and then I left it there and they were they were thrilled just to have the book <laughs> a clean copy of it. Sure, a clean yeah. copy of the book <laughs> <laughs> yes we're we're currently on a campaign for uh for pocketbooks to reissue the book okay cuz you know they've got all the background stuff and they keep thinking about it but they're not sure if it would be worthwhile or not so send those cards and letters in guys <laughs> yeah listen up I would definitely pick one of those up. What do you think it is, uh, going back to Tribbles, uh, about Tribbles yeah. that you think people love so much? Uh, why have they left such an impression on fandom? Well, it's everyone's, you know, when people, whenever they've done those surveys, they've said, what's the best episode of the original series? And right. it's always broken into two categories. People say, well, my favorite episode is The Trouble with Tribbles, but the best episode is Sitting on the Edge of Forever. That's right, usually yeah. the response. Right. So they always separate it that way, you know, and so everybody just loves the episode because um, I think I was listening to your interview about the uh, the original episode the other day, and it's, it's just such a fun one because yeah. it allowed the various characters to kind of break out of their set characterization of themselves. Sure. So it was a funny episode, plus the acting in it was a little bit broad. Not so broad that they broke the character, but it was it was fun, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lines in there that actually I noticed when we were, re- when we were re-watching Trials and Tribulations, you know, Shatner does this delivery on one thing where he says, storage department, or storage compartment, storage compartment, and Cisco actually says it in exactly the same way <laughs> in Trials and Tribulations. So a lot of the delivery and a lot of the stuff that went on, it's just stuck in people's minds. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into the details of the episode. Uh, we are talking about Trials and Tribulations. Uh, it was first aired on November 4th of 1996. Um, a lot of people worked on this episode, but specifically the teleplay is credited to Ronald D. Moore and Rene uh, Echeverria. Uh, the story is by Iris Eve Bear, Hans Beimler, and Robert Hewitt Wolf. It was directed by Jonathan West, who was a director of photography on DS9 and also on TNG, and he directed several episodes of DS9. The star date given for the past version of this episode is 4523.7. And your assignment, Paula and Terry, if you can, is to give us a 25 word synopsis of Trials and Tribulations. <laughs> Shall I try this? Um, if you like. <laughs> the, um, the, the Defiant, the, the Deep Space Nine crew that we all know and love is returning from uh, Cardassia carrying a orb of time, the orbs being a Bajoran religious device, and they don't know it, but on the ship with them is a guy who happens to be Arn Darvin from the, in disguise, a former Klingon from the original episode, and um, he manipulates the orb of time to throw them back a hundred years because he has an intention to kill Kirk before any of this stuff happened, and our Deep Space Nine heroes come upon the plot and uh, foil, aim, it. Uh, foil it, aim to stop him. 
Now, sure. obviously, all those adjectives, I, I'm sure, brought us over 25 words. <laughs> if you subtract adjectives and parentheticals, I think you're really yes, close. Yes, parenthetical <laughs> comments. <laughs> uh, 25 are, words is very few, you know. 25 is not a lot. That's true. That's barely. That's yeah. one floor on an elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of interesting facts about the memory banks for this episode, and you guys literally wrote the book on it, so I'd certainly love to hear your input on what you know about the episode. Uh it was conceived as a tribute, of course, to the uh, to Star Trek for its 30th anniversary, and I believe that Paramount asked uh, DS9 executive producer Iris Stephen Bear to write a story that would commemorate that anniversary. And from what I've read, uh, he originally wanted to focus on Charlie X, um, the first episode that you saw, Paula. Um, it had been a favorite of his, and uh, I think he some he knew or he'd like seen the actor who played Charlie Robert Walker around. So I think he knew that he yeah. could get a hold Robert of him. Robert Walker Jr. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, I hadn't heard that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, basically, he said he um, because Ira isn't as familiar with the original series. Now that may well be true, but uh, they did start looking right away at older episodes to do something with. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, um, Star Trek Voyager was also asked to do a tribute thing, and they found out before they started working, the Deep Space Nine crew found out before they started working on theirs that um, that episode was going to bring Sulu into it. So uh-huh. they thought, oh, gee, it would, it would be copying if we used a character that had actually been in the show, one of the major characters. Right. So they started just thinking about, doing a play, you know, uh, a takeoff on one of them, somehow getting some details into it. And the first thing, and basically Ira turned to uh, Renee and Robert, who he considers the biggest Star Trek nerds on the staff, um, to come up with a theme for it. And so originally they thought about doing something based on... um, a piece of the action. A piece of the action. Right. And Ron's thought, Ron Moore's thought on that would be, what if they went back to that planet all these years later and found out that the people on the planet, because they had met Kirk and company, they were no longer emulating gangsters. They were suddenly all dressed up in Star Trek uniforms. <laughs> right. <laughs> because that was who they were imitating now. <laughs> right, They yeah. thought it was cool. And their technology had evolved, so they were basically living in a little fake Star Trek universe. <laughs> yeah, Ron, Ron, uh, Ron Moore said that they would have portrayed it as the planet of fandom. Right. And I think the impression that they got uh, that kind of crept in after a while was they were worried that fans would think that they were making fun of them or trying to... That's like, exactly uh, right. Almost yeah. immediately, Renee Echeverria said, oh, the fans might start thinking, uh, uh, thinking we're poking fun at them. <laughs> and... and um, Ira told me that from that moment on, nobody could get that thought out of their head, so they couldn't do it. But uh-huh. everybody was surprised a few years later when all of a sudden comes this motion picture, Galaxy Quest, yeah. and there it is, exactly yeah. their idea. <laughs> and in fact, their concern and worry was incorrect. Yeah. I think it all would have been in how you did it. Yeah. Oh, sure. You yeah. know, and Galaxy Quest worked wonderfully. You know, and it was kind of a tribute to the show, too. It might not have been that easy to do that for a regular yeah, episode of Deep Space Night. It might have come off a little bit hokey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and maybe it took the sort of outside view of people that weren't involved in Trek to sort of, um, you know, even-handedly sort of praise it but make fun of it as well. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 
I think so. Probably. Yeah. Well, they started talking about, well, what could we do instead? And uh, they said, and then suddenly somebody had seen the movie Forrest Gump, which was... Well, they all had, because it was a Paramount movie. Yeah, it was a recent (laughs) film. And uh, they saw Tom Hanks shake hands with John F. Kennedy. Right. And that visual effects shot was, like, groundbreaking. And so, you know, everybody came to the set and they said, I wonder if we could do that. Would it be expensive? How could, you know, how could we do that? That would be better than just writing a news story with our guys on the Enterprise or something. And um, so they checked it out, and they went to um, uh, one of the visual effects guys, Gary Hutzel, and Gary put together a, um, a shot from The Trouble with Tribbles and inserted one of his visual effects guys wearing a red shirt on, on the bridge of the and showed it to everybody you know, showed it to the writing staff, they showed it to Rick Berman, and nobody recognized that this extra character didn't belong there. Right. And that, that proved to them that they could do the, you know, the visual effects that were necessary, but it was going to be really expensive. Yeah. So they, they spent the next few months, you know, and literally figuring out how they could do it at a cost. And we ended up with uh, Trials and Tribulations. Yeah, I've seen that footage, I think, on YouTube. Um, if you look yeah. it up, you can find it. And, yeah, it's it's great. I yeah, mean, it's just you have this to... kind of tall, geeky guy standing yeah. <laughs> right. on, the, on one side of the elevator. And if you look down, you'll notice he's wearing tennis shoes. You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing a uniform, but those aren't the right regulation boots. <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a crazy story about how they got uh, Charlie Brill, who played Arn Darvin in the original. Yeah. Episode. Oh yeah, yeah. A, a mission from God. It's, it's almost unbelievable yeah. that you know they started talking about. Well, they went out to lunch at a place called what is it Mulberry Street or something. Yeah, like Mulberry that. Street Pizza in Santa Monica. Yeah. And um, they went out there and they were just talking. Well, who's still alive? Who can we use? You know, and they. But some yeah, of them. We, some of them were busy. Some of them were dead. Yeah, Whit Bissell was already dead. They had already killed off Koloth. Um, a couple of other things like that, where there were reasons that they couldn't. They no. Whit Bissell had been in another episode, I think. Um, there were reasons that they just didn't dare use anybody else. Right. And suddenly um, they said, "Well, what about that guy, Aaron Darvin? He was kind of young." And and Ira, who loves stand-up comedy and all that stuff, knew that. Uh, that Charlie Brill was a stand-up comedian, and he says, yeah, I think he's still working. In fact, he's got a role on a TV show right now. And uh, son of a gun, and they thought, well, how could we contact him? And he was in the restaurant. Yeah, I I was talking to the guy, and he said, well, you know, he's doing this television show called Silk Stocking, so we know that he's working. And in fact... He's sitting right over there. And Iris, it was almost and, like he set it up. You know? Yeah, and I right. said, the, the guys didn't believe him. And he said, no, 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 turn around, look. He's really right over there. And they turned around, and there was Charlie Brill sitting at the, at the counter. Right. And I, I interviewed Charlie Brill, and he said, uh, I sure am glad I didn't go out to pizza. Uh, he said, I, I'm surely glad that I didn't go out for Chinese that day. I wouldn't have gotten the gig. <laughs> 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 yeah, Charlie and his wife uh, Mitzi uh, McCall yeah. uh, were yeah. uh, actors and comedians. Yeah, there's also yeah, a story right. about how he um, <laughs> they were booked on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th of 1964. Right. Yes, right. They were which, the act that was on right before the Beatles. Yeah, exactly. Or right after. I don't remember. Oh, right. Yeah. Which, 
Yeah, there's a there's a great uh, This American Life story called Take My Break, Please, where they interview Charlie and Mitzi. And they even talk about a run-in that they had with John Lennon. A uh, short version of the story, they had kind of a crappy dressing room, and the Coke machine was in their dressing room. And so while they're trying to get ready for the show, this guy you know, with a mop top comes in, and he gets a Coke, and then he starts talking to them. And they're like, they're kind of like, leave us alone. We're trying to get ready for the show here. And it turns out that that was John Lennon. <laughs> Which, by the way, and call me crazy, but in the episode, the original uh, Triple Tribbles episode, if you look at uh, Charlie Brill, when he's dressed up like Arn Darvin, he's in that gray kind of Nero suit. Right. He looks yeah. a little like John Lennon, just a little bit, a little if you bit. to me. Well, yeah. I'll have to Photoshop a mop top haircut. hair a little bit like yeah. that, although much shorter. Yeah, yeah right. the Nero suit wasn't that much different from some of those early Beatle suits that they wore. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's, it's all period piece stuff, you know. If you talk about the 60s, it's recognizable from any photograph. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well and Charlie Brill had another story. He said, um, he said uh, the way he got hired to play, to play in the original show in the, the Trouble with Tribbles in 67, 66, mm-hmm. he, he said uh, he was a friend of, of Lenny Nimoy. <laughs> and Lenny um, called him one day and said, hey, oh, and, and I, I want to introduce you to somebody. He took him over to Paramount and he introduced him to Gene Roddenberry. And, and um, Brill didn't know who Roddenberry was, but he, and, and um, Roddenberry looked at Brill and said, Arn Darvin. And Charlie Brill didn't know what that meant. He thought maybe it was a Jewish holiday. So it was, oh, and a happy Arn Darvin to you. <laughs> he, said, he said to Roddenberry. And then uh, and they hired him, and he got the job, and, and that was the trouble with Tribbles. So he said when he got hired to play the character again on uh, Trials and Tribulations, he called up Leonard Nimoy to tell him. And Leonard said, wow, you must have really made a, made a temptation they use you once every 29 years. Yeah, <laughs> right. an impression. Yeah. An impre- yeah, they, you must have really made an impression. They use you once every 29 years. <laughs> uh, let's get that guy back, yeah. <laughs> uh, in The Magic of Tribbles, you guys go into great detail about the technical challenges the production faced, uh, integrating some of that um, new footage and new actors into the scenes from the old show. And the painstaking work that the VFX people had to do, they had to hand paint shadows in some uh, mm-hmm. scenes and rotoscope. I'd have to imagine if this was done today, there'd be a lot more advanced computer tools probably to make oh, it yeah. possible. Oh, yeah. There'd be nothing, nothing to it. Yeah, yeah, it'd be easy these days. And in yeah. fact, you see that all the time these days. Everything is possible. Yeah. In those days, you know, they they did the lineup with the guys getting chewed up by Kirk. And right. <laughs> just when they thought they got it right, they discovered there were some extra arms sticking out that didn't belong to anybody because right. they'd taken that character out. Yeah, they brought. They didn't only put in um, Bashir and O'Brien. They had to put in another. They got. They hired an actor, a very large guy, to put him in so he could cover up yeah. some of the people <laughs> behind because there was no way to fit it all into that lineup. And and in and in the end they couldn't correct this. So if you can freeze frame it and carefully count, there's one too many feet still in the okay. picture. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's uh there's some great examples of how those uh those sort of trials and problems led to new uh material though as well. Because yeah. of course we've got the deck fifteen girl, uh who's sort of inserted as a character in the new version yeah. of the episode. Right. Right. Yeah, there are a couple, there are two waitresses that show up, and also the girl in the elevator, too. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the two waitresses was actually Jonathan West's girlfriend. Oh, okay. Who was also an actress, but uh, she was pretty good. 
Okay. She's the. I think she's the one who was a little more of a smart aleck, although they both were. Right. So. <laughs> the, uh, they they said they had interviewed a number of because the because the deck fifteen girl was just going to be a walk on and walk off. Um, they had interviewed a bunch of people, but they didn't like any of them. So Renea Trevia had actually called a friend of his, a, 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 a female actress, I forget her name now. Deborah Immersion? Yeah, something, something like that. that. And um, they said afterwards they were glad because later on they gave her more lines. It'd be, it'd, the, the episode turned out to be um, something like 90 seconds too short. Oh, okay. And they said, what are we going to do? And so they came up with the paradox... Um, uh, a scene where uh, where but um, she Bashir, wonders if she's actually his great yeah he wonder, he, she, <laughs> right. she she hits she hits up on him yeah. and he wonders if he could in fact be his own grandfather and that scene was written just to fill out the space and if they hadn't had an actress who could deliver lines they couldn't have been able wouldn't have been able to do it oh sure. and by the way I looked her up and it's Deidre Immersion Deidre. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. She was, I think, in a um, TNG episode as well, uh, Captain's Holiday, uh, uh, earlier on. I hope generation. so, because I love when, when actors get work. I just think every, <laughs> everyone who is acting should actually make a living doing it. I just hope so. And, you know, something that occurred to me this morning when I was thinking about trials and tribulations and what they did to Arne Darvin, I thought, well, now you have a whole new perspective on that because... I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. No, everybody's seen it by now. Um, there's a character in Star yeah. Trek Discovery yeah. <laughs> who is a Klingon who was turned into a human, and now we know how much effort goes into it. Now, right. this was a decade before uh, the trouble with Tribbles took place. Maybe they got a little better at it. <laughs> but, right. but it doesn't sound like it was too pleasant at the time, so they must have gotten much better at it by the time they uh, changed Arn Darvin. Sure, and I wonder if it was just because of um, if he started off as a uh, smooth-headed uh, Klingon or a, a bumpy-headed Klingon, because maybe the yeah they haven't a addressed little, that a little easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, actors, uh, or maybe the lack thereof, you know, it's a trend now in films to uh, have digital recreations of actors, uh, and they probably could uh, insert like a Cyrano Jones or a Niels Barris into the episode if they're going to do it today. If they could get permission from the estate, that's true, yeah. from the family. Um, they probably could. It probably would be much easier. I don't look forward to the day when we're never looking at live actors. Yeah. We're well, yeah. looking at animated characters. It's not, not, yeah. not a pleasant futuristic and, thought. And in fact, uh, I love that they recast Harry Mudd, you know, in uh, yeah, Star right. Trek Discovery, a young one. And he's snarky enough. You can kind of, you look at him and you think, yeah, I could see him turning into Roger C. Carmel. Sure. Right yeah. <laughs> a few pounds later, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Ten years, lock and hat. Actually, you know, he got married to Stella after that episode. That's right. So you know, marriage <laughs> does put pounds on you. <laughs> well, uh, we could take a little break and talk about Star Trek Discovery if you guys want to. Uh, it seems like you are uh, you are watching Discovery and you're enjoying it. Yeah, um, I especially am an enjoy am enjoying it. It is not traditional Star Trek, but yeah. I think. When the studio hired J.J. Abrams to do those movies, I think that that was a sign that they were going to take a little bend away from traditional Star Trek. And I actually like Discovery much better than uh, Abrams' take on the universe. Okay. Uh, because I think they're playing much fairer by what's canon. Terry, do you uh, have a similar outlook? Yes, I don't, I don't, I'm not 
as uh, locked into Discovery as Paula is. Uh, well, excuse me, it is Star Trek, so I'm very locked in. But Paula <laughs> really likes it, and I'm still sort of waiting for things to happen. Sure. But I love the fact that they were hinting at stuff in the past that now they're bringing, I don't want to do spoilers here, but now they're bringing them about. So if you had, you know, people said, ooh, Lorca is not the kind of guy that Starfleet ever would have had. Well, now there's a reason that it may sure. he may have disturbed uh, the fan thought a little bit. And um, so I'm really interested in how the writers, and they're really good, how the writers are going to reconcile all of the things. How are they going to get the, from the technology that we're seeing in Discovery to the technology that we saw in the original series? Mm -hmm. How are they going to get from the way the universe looks, the, the way Klingons look in Discovery to the way Klingons look mm -hmm. in, the, in the original series to the way Klingons look on Deep Space Nine? I think that they're working it all out, and I'm fascinated by the the corners that they've written themselves into and how they're <laughs> writing themselves out of it. Yeah. yeah. And I think Terry's only reservation with it is that the show is is at times very dark and yeah. violent. Sure. And, you know, I'm not a fan of that either, but I think that they're doing stories that justify it. Yeah. So uh, I'm just really enjoying the ride. In the book, you guys talk about how they had to, when recreating some of these scenes or trying to match them, they had to find like the perfect film stock and film yes. speed to make sure yes. that they could even do the effects uh, that they wanted to do. That's the reason they hired Jonathan West. They, they the signed director. him on as the director because they knew that the actors could handle their own, their own work. And um, you know the the if they did any storyboarding or anything, the actors would know where they were supposed to stand and and what their personalities were. Sure. The big challenge with trial and tribulations was locking together the old footage with some kind of new footage. So and the the kind of film stock they used back in the old days was really slow. And it doesn't even exist anymore when they, well, today it doesn't exist at all. But it didn't exist, so they had to come up with a film stock, so they had to do lighting changes, mm -hmm. and they had to paint in shadows. I mean, it, was, it was much more a tremendous amount of effort, and if everybody involved hadn't cared, they wouldn't have gotten it done. Yeah, sure. and I mean, I think that you can see this was a real work of love mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, and it was fun for them, too, you know, I mean, especially for Ron and Renee. And they had to really, before they could think about which episodes they were going to insert or which scenes they were going to insert the DS9 characters into, they really had to go over footage with Jonathan West. And he would look at it and they'd say, okay, we can fit Dax and Cisco into the background of this shot, no problem. You know, and, and there were other scenes they couldn't use because... It just wouldn't have worked. I mean, with Dax on the bridge and that scene when Kirk sits on the triple, right. they had to make her be bending over because she's so tall to start out with, and they had a very little window of space to fit her in so that it would have looked proportionally correct. Right. Uh, it was a lot of work, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, both they, before and after. <laughs> they, had, they had some coincidences, too. I mean, if you look at the original series, Kirk doesn't always wear the same shirt. He only wears the same shirt a few times. Right. And um, they, they wanted to do the scene where uh, Cisco actually meets Kirk. 
put the two captains together. So it was almost necessary for the episode. Sure. And they uh, they came up with an idea of a shot. I think it was from Mirror Mirror. Yes, that, it was. Um, that uh, Cisco, the, a, a young lady walks Marlena, up and talks Marlena to, Monroe. <laughs> yeah, comes up and talks to Kirk, and they thought if we can put Cisco into that position, it'd be great. And coincidentally. Kirk's wearing the shirt that he's wearing in the Trouble with Tribbles. Right. It, you know, it just worked out. It was kismet. <laughs> it was um, a, a mission from God. They called yes. it. Um, but uh, but there were there were spots where where in the original series Kirk is standing or walking, I think, and a, a, a non-dialogue actor walks in front of him, and he can't see Kirk's hand. So they found in another episode where Spock, Leonard Nimoy is standing with his hand in that position. So they took his hand out of one episode okay. and put it... Uh, 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 they took Spock's hand from one episode and put it on Kirk's arm for this okay. episode. It was a ton of work. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, very detailed. Yeah, no kidding. Um, speaking of uh, labors of love, uh, there's a guy you mentioned in your uh, book a couple times named Greg Jean, who's a model. Ooh, yeah, oh, yeah, Greg. Greg. And, He's uh, the best. He was instrumental in creating uh, some of the models and the pieces uh, for the recreated episode. And they, he was working on them before they even told That's him. That's what to I work. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, 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 Somebody mentioned to him, "Hey, we might do a, a like a tribute to Tribbles," and he just jumped in and built a six-foot Enterprise. <laughs> and that while he was doing it, because he said they never had it before. He built the the K two space station. No, they just, they did have a K two space station, but never a big one. Okay. He did one that would proportionally work with the ship. Okay. What they had never had in the original episode was a Klingon cruiser. Oh. Okay. Or uh, bird of prey. Sorry. Mm. Or wait, no, it was cruiser. Uh, Klingon cruiser, and he built that too, even though they didn't necessarily need it. But they thought, "What the hell, will you stick it in there?" Sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and you'll notice that Paul is the kind of person that adamantly wants to be accurate about whether it was a Klingon bird of prey or a Klingon cruiser. Well, that was my job. (laughs) Right. You know, my job was when I read these manuscripts that came in to me, if they were wrong about one of the details, I'd send a note to Pocket Books and say, no, it wasn't a bird of prey, it was a cruiser. And I have to to live with this woman. Think of how careful I have to be. No kidding, uh, but you've written so many (laughs) reference books and uh, you retain all these facts, Uh, you could probably really clean up in a Star Trek pub quiz. Oh, probably. Well, maybe, except the problem now is that because we are so old, <laughs> our memories are failing. We remember all the details, but the names start to slip away. Okay, yeah. There's a local group here that does a Star Trek pub quiz uh, every month or so, and I always go thinking, uh, I'm a big fan. I got a Star Trek podcast. I can do this. And I always leave going like, of course, why didn't Michael and Sara, how did I forget that? <laughs> exactly, you know. I mean, you can see the person's face right in your mind, yes. but you can't think of the name. Right. Really? Well, when even I mean, even way back then, it was 20 years ago, but I would be on the set, and every once in a while I would call one of the 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 day players or one of the you know one episode only actors I would call them by the character name instead of their real their actor name their sure. you know real name yeah. and then I always had to apologize instantly I recognized my <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you could pick any classic episode or even a more recent one uh, from a Trek series to give the tribulations treatment to which one would it be Ooh, I hadn't ever thought about that. A, a brand new, you're very good, a question no one's ever asked. Stop. I know. My um, goodness. 
I'm thinking about the fact that you mentioned uh, Spock's brain. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, I don't think that would make an especially good update, but I do love that episode. And Me too. I just wanted to say that I was responsible for that being chosen to be the one done by the improv years ago. Oh, re- okay, sure, yeah. Did you ever see that or hear about it? I've heard about it, yeah. Yeah, they... Um, the people from the improv came to us and said, we want to do one of the Star Trek episodes. It, we won't change it at all. We'll do the exact dialogue. <laughs> but, you know, well, being that they're the improv, they'll be kind of funny at it. Sure. And so, you know, so everybody's starting to think about episodes. And my boss was saying, well, why don't you get, use one of the funny ones, like the Trouble with Tribbles or, you know a piece of the action or something. I said, no, I think they want to do something serious because then they could have more fun with it. If it's a comedy to start out with, how much yeah. funnier can you make it? Right. So I was the one who suggested Spock's brain okay. because I thought that's perfect because it's a comedy disguised as a drama. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. Uh, I think if you're going to remake something, uh, I think a good rule is like, remake something that didn't get it right the first time. So I guess exactly. I would, I would throw, exactly. I'd throw out um, Turnabout Intruder. <laughs> Find some yeah. way to, yeah. behind the scenes, redeem it. Like, body swap a couple more times, show, yeah. you know, <laughs> just because the action is so ridiculous and kind of insulting, but, like, show that in some other context it actually kind of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of them. I'd actually have to think a while to, <clears throat> to come up with a different example because... There's a lot of possibilities. I wonder, oh, sure. do, do you think fan, the fans, the real fans who have been around for you know their entire lives have been deep into this? I commend all of them. I love them to death. <laughs> um, but if you did, you know, bonk bonk on the head differently, <laughs> would they would they resent it or would they like it? I'm not sure how some of these things would be rece- received. You know, yeah. can you can you take? You know, there's an episode of uh, the Next Generation where the where the people are wearing like almost like diapers and stuff, and <laughs> right, justice, and if, yeah. if you redid that, <laughs> you could really really improve things. <laughs> but would it be sacrilege to do it? I'm not Probably. Sure. It would almost be funny making the Star Trek characters, whichever series you were doing, dress up in that stuff. You know, <laughs> right. Uh, plus, uh, you need the Mayberry set to do Mary again, and that's long gone. Yes, you, you, would. you, you would. <laughs> yes, that's true. You would. <laughs> this is a very funny episode by design, uh, as was the original Trouble with Tribbles, uh, but that didn't necessarily sit well with the production staff back in the 60s. Uh, Roddenberry, Samuel Peoples, and even Bob Justman all came out at one time or another to say that they didn't like the original right. Tribbles episode because Trek shouldn't be funny. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, well, they... They thought it was disrespecting the characters. Uh-huh. And it and it looks like everybody just had a lot of fun with it. Well, sure. So, and I think they didn't anticipate just how popular that episode would be. Oh, yeah. But you know the people who created the original Trek like Gene and and all the others, they they had a more serious take on it because they had just created this thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, and later on you think, "Oh, yeah, it would be fun to do that." Change your pace. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think we, we need to give a little credit to the Tribble itself. That little fuzzy ball with no mouth, no eyes, no legs, no, you can't figure out how it could possibly do anything except lay there. 
is so cute. <laughs> and then, you know, having it purr like a morning dove and all of that made it so cute. I think it, it instantly became extremely enduring, and that probably saved the episode. If they'd used something like, you know, like... like worst childhood pet or something yeah. it wouldn't have worked <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so we have to thank david gerald too for yeah, writing that episode. absolutely yeah who is a funny guy so he's going to produce a funny script for sure yeah uh speaking about like the uh the effect of the uh the tribbles themselves and just um you know seeing mm. them on screen i'd agree uh, you know if you go and watch the animated series episode uh, more tribbles more troubles Yes. Which is also uh-huh. fun and written by uh, Gerald. It's right. not quite the same. They're just kind of like cotton candy puffs, and uh, you don't get the. Uh, and they're all pink. And they're Why all are pink. They pink. Yeah. Well, I actually. <laughs> Why are they pink? I actually read that uh, because Hal Sutherland, the director and producer of the series, uh, was colorblind. He didn't know they were pink. He just saw light gray. Oh, so somebody in the nobody told them. Somebody in the art department came up with the pink, yeah, and then he, I guess, never just nixed it because he never really thought. Oh, you know what they thought? They must have thought it was a children's show Saturday morning. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know, but it was funny. And lately, I've been seeing on the internet, you know, spend too much time on social media, but there's pictures going around of tribbles with teeth that are very scary these days. I don't know if they're supposed to be mere universe tribbles. (laughs) I hope it's not a look into the future of Star Trek Discovery. (laughs) That's a a kind of a funny thought, mere universe tribbles. That is kind of... Oh, maybe well, and we evil, have seen sure. Lorca with a tribble on his desk, right. and I'm right. kind of wondering why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and my friends at CBS tell me that the writers have promised they will explain why the tribble is there, and I'm waiting. Interesting. I'm waiting. Yeah. But if, you know, if there, if a mirror universe tribble would be the exact opposite, does that mean they don't eat? Right. <laughs> Either that or they eat people. Right. <laughs> They're very, That's, they're very which, abstemious, and uh, they yes. don't, they don't breed. I think, uh, yeah. I think if you had that many tribbles on your ship, and they were mirror universe ones, I don't think the crew would be left behind. Yeah, which the, just uh, be tribbles. The uh, special effects guy on the uh, Space Nine was asked to make the make tribbles that would move and things for uh, for the episode, and, because they had to have tribbles that they could uh, that. Could walk da- Dax, well, and Dax and Cisco were crawling through, and, and they had them wiggling a little bit. So we had little motors, little server motors, and guys off to the side with joysticks making a move. But they had to blow a couple, blow one up. You know, they, right. they threw, uh, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen this twenty <laughs> well, years ago. Um, they they uh, um, beam it out into space and blow it up, and so they had to literally do the explosion and photograph it, and Gary said he felt really terrible when he <laughs> he wired a couple of tribbles, you know, they made several of them because they had to do several shots, and as he was wiring them with with little blasters inside, okay. he felt terrible, and when they blew it up, it broke his heart. He, oh. had, he murdered tribble. Yeah. He, he really didn't like doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we said in that book, The Magic of Tribble, something like, no real Tribbles were killed for the making of this episode. <laughs> I should uh, reread that book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, I love uh, Dax's involvement in the episode, and I think I read that um, the writers liked using her as kind of, you know, their stand-in. Because yeah, she was their surrogate. Yeah. Um, she's and, in, and ours, and the, the public's. Sure. Yeah, because she had 
ostensibly been around at the time, and <laughs> and she's the one who said that she had a relationship with Leonard McCoy, and right. he had the hands of a surgeon <laughs> yeah, <even> then, right. <laughs> when they were in college. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting thing for people who are trying to write scripts and such. Um, it, it, it is good to have one character who has sort of the audience point of view, because it gives yeah. the viewer something to identify with. It, you, the viewer isn't so outside of it if there's somebody inside who's uh, who represents them. And, and Dax did a, and Terry Farrell did a tremendous job at it. I think yeah. she was really good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. She's sort of like reliving her glory days. Like it's it's yes. the sixties, the twenty two sixties, of course. I know. And she right. says, "Look at the classic lines of this tricorder." Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Well, as we uh, start to wrap up here, can you think of any last thoughts that you have about the episode or, or your connection to it? If you pay attention to fights the the way they're done today on screen, I mean they're real quick, you know, punches and you know, and people we we all understand about fighting. But when the 1966 show was done, it they shot it like a western, you know, these big roundhouse swinging yeah. blows, and it you know it was old fashioned fighting, and it was what was expected then. So when uh, when they um, did the new show, they had to match the old style of fighting. So the fight goes on for longer than you would have not done on a normal DS9, yeah. and um, it's really fun to kind of watch. You know, the, the slow spinning instead yeah. of instead of quick punches. Yeah. And a fight that looks like it couldn't have come out of a 1960s Western. You know? sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can see John Wayne throwing yes, those punches exactly. ra- rather than the way that, you know, the, the, uh, O'Brien would have actually thrown punches. Yeah. yeah. Put a set of uh, saloon doors on the little bar there and you're all set. I still exactly. Have... <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what the, exactly the sliding correct. door was like. Yeah. You know, just like... <laughs> I, st- I still love the story that I heard about uh, John Dwyer, the guy who uh, did set yeah. stuff for the original show, had gotten all these chairs, these futuristic-looking chairs uh, for that scene, but they had to rent them from showrooms because it was all the chairs that they could find. And so they told yeah. the director, under no circumstances can any of these chairs be damaged during this fight scene. So as soon <laughs> as soon as Scotty lays the punch on uh, on Korath, uh, everybody shoots up and does that move where the chairs slide out, and they're gone right. for the rest of that scene. There are no chairs in that scene anyway. That's good Don't directing. Don't chairs. <laughs> really. It, 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 making this stuff is harder than you expect. You know, if you just watch it once, you think, oh, that must have been easy. But by golly, it but, ain't easy. You know, the fact that they were able to <laughs> is one of those things that makes you believe in it was meant to be. Yeah, you know, like absolutely. Robert Blackman happened to find some of the cloth that the Klingon uniforms were made out of. And, you know, he right. actually found a couple of the actual uniforms and he found a couple of the sashes, too, which were really hard to duplicate if you didn't have a, an example in front of you. And didn't so. I read that the Klingon belts were made of, like, uh, bubble wrap or, or something like yes. that? Yeah, yes, yes, which wrap. was very exotic at the time. Yeah, it was a brand-new thing, so they just bu- took bubble wrap and spray-painted it, and it was nobody had ever seen such a thing before. <laughs> <laughs> the, the oh, and, uh, and a last shout-out to the hairdressers who worked on Trials and Tribulations. The hair was great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> great re- you know, especially Bashir's terrible haircut. <laughs> yes, very classic. I know, it looks like guys I went to high school with. <laughs> it was kind of like people who'd seen the Beatles and wanted to sort of look like them, but didn't. <laughs> right, right, yeah. 
<laughs> well, uh, now that we're at the end of the show, I have a very important question. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who is your favorite captain and why? Ooh. Oh, well, for me, that's not difficult. I think Cisco is the best well-rounded character in Star Trek. Interesting. He is a fabulous father to Jake. He's so smart. He, you know, I mean, when when uh, Q comes on Deep Space Nine and he he is insulting Cisco, Cisco just punches him. Yeah. And Q says, Picard never punched me. And Cisco yeah. says, I'm not Picard. I love that man. <laughs> <laughs> and as for as for my choice, you know, it's it's hard. It depends on the context. People used to say, "Well, who would you rather be if you were on a part of the crew? Who would you rather be your captain?" Mm. And I think it was a lot more fun in the original series, you know, because they were going out space adventuring, and there was probably a little bit too much politics on the next generation ship. Everybody was very well behaved and and all that. And when I was writing fanzine stories, I must admit, I put myself as an as a lieutenant on the Starship <laughs> Enterprise, sure. the original one. Kind of like uh, Cisco, you're not pushing your luck. The lieutenant's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as long as you weren't a red shirt, a red shirt, right. you probably would come through alive on Kirk's <laughs> <her> ship. <laughs> other than Cisco, can you see any other Trek captain uh, taking Kirk's place in this episode, or excuse me, uh, taking Cisco's place? Taking Cisco. Oh, if they. Oh, in the episode, if they'd redone this uh, trials and tribulations for for Enterprise, for or Enterprise Voyager, or, or for Voyager, yeah. Can you see any of the other I think captains? They all, I think they all could have mm-hmm. done it. I think that. Uh, I think Janeway would have had the most fun with it, but you know, obviously a sex alteration there. Sure, but. that's true. But but your question is one of of writing. If the if the screenplay were good, if the writers knew you know really had good intentions and were good at what they do, um, any of them could do the part. But um, but I think if you look at those. Um, those holodeck adventures on Voyager, yeah. and how much fun she had playing Arachnia. Sure, yeah. I think she could she could have had the most fun with it. Yeah, she really threw herself into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, she uh, she works hard, but she plays hard. I like that about her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. very interesting, and uh, and Scott Bakula, wonderful character. Um, but as as his character on Enterprise, he was very serious. Yeah, that's true. And and, you know, I, I kept on wanting Tim to break free like he did in Quantum Leap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it, we, want, we often discuss this. Um, we have, over the years, had reason to come up with photography from all of the shows, and I don't think we've ever seen a photograph of Archer smiling. <laughs> Scott I played him. He Scott. did. I mean, all of his publicity stills for every year were very serious. Right. Yes, yeah, Scott played him very serious. He didn't seem to have a whole lot of lightness going by. Now, you know, maybe it was for the... I mean, they were in a very serious situation. They were first time ever blindly going where no man has gone. Right. And he had to, you know, be intent and intense, but um, I, I just wanted to see Archer smile once. <laughs> Archer, 
you need to smile more. <laughs> he probably smiled when he was uh, a little kid, like making models with his dad and flying. Or maybe when he was playing with his dog. <laughs> yeah, right. Or maybe yeah, playing with Porthos. In the privacy of his cabin. <laughs> but but just to toss this out before we go away, I really like Enterprise. I think it's a great Four Seasons. I've just been getting back into it recently, and I am discovering that um, there is a lot that I do like about it. I think it's very yeah. um, reflective of the time that it came out. You know, it was... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they had this idea before, but you know, it's it's after 9/11, and there are certain yes, exactly things I mean, that they're it, trying it to communicate. It debuted right after it. Yeah, it debuted right after 9/11. Yeah. yeah, but we saw the pilot. We we were lucky enough to be invited to see the pilot before it aired on the big screen on the Paramount lot. Oh, wow. So we saw it on a on a full size giant it screen. Pretty cool. It looked really cool. And my first comment when the lights came up, I said, uh, uh, "Recut it around the the commercial breaks." And put it into the theaters. It would have worked great for me in in you know in a thousand fifty theaters opening weekend. Sure. So. Uh, at the end of every show, each guest receives a commission in our Starfleet and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship would you two work in? The two of us. Well, yes. I'd have to go with I'd have to go with my fanzine character, and she worked in the linguistics department. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> Really? Yes. <laughs> no, the, 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 oh, really? You? Yeah, yeah. You you actually come up with these wonderful brand new questions. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> <laughs> what department you want to work in, Terry? I don't know. I don't want to. I I never want to leave the ship. I don't want to get in trouble, so I'll, I'll, you know, give me janitorial. (laughs) (laughs) It must exist. We never see it, but it must exist uh, somehow. I know. Somebody keeps things clean. (laughs) That's right. Somebody mops those decks, for sure. (laughs) And now I'm waiting to see the episode. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. Maybe in Discovery. Uh, Well, there's there's a show called, there was an episode called Lower Decks. Yeah. And even though my janitorial character didn't make it, he he would be with them. Yeah, that he'd works. hang out with those guys. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Playing their own smaller poker game, smaller stakes. Yes. 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 <laughs> or he'd, or he'd, his dream would be to be able to sit in someday. <laughs> right, he's on the waiting list for the poker game. Yes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sit in and play with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ensign's Block and Erdman, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you on online uh facebook yeah me too facebook or or twitter we don't have our own website um we're just too lazy to have gotten one started (laughs) yeah but if if you look at our books you'll notice we both use our middle initials sure so if you do terry j erdman and paula m block facebook and twitter we're on both of them we welcome people to join to talk to us to friend us or to unfriend us as they wish (laughs) (laughs) and uh but uh, we're pretty open to everybody. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of the nice thing about Twitter is that um, you really can feel like you're participating in things. Because I notice, like, all the actors from Discovery, if they really like something, they'll respond to people. Sure. And Mark Hamill responds to people. You know, it, it gives you a chance to feel like you're part of the group. You're crossing the streams, Paula. You're crossing oh, the streams. Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a lot different than the old days of writing to uh, William Shatner and getting the uh, form letter reply back from Paramount. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Different. Yeah. yeah. So. And your books like uh, Star Trek 101 and I, I, the Constable, are available on Amazon and other places where books are sold? 
Yeah, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Um, you might find copies in in small bookstores yeah, everywhere. Yeah, it's probably easiest to find our stuff on Amazon because sometimes it's considered specialty stuff, like our book that we wrote about labyrinths uh, last year for that movie's 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. It was a big hardcover color book. You know, it was kind of like the costume book, but a lot of stores thought, oh, you know, this, I don't know if people will buy this. It's expensive. So <laughs> it's mostly been sold on Amazon, and Target carried it for really good prices. Oh, great. Places like that. So just look it up. And The Magic of Tribbles, by the way, is still available as an ebook. It was Pocket Book's first uh, nonfiction ebook. Oh. That was one of my private, proudest moments. One day, somebody told me that I had to buy a copy of Publishers Weekly magazine, which I never expected to be mentioned in. And there was a little, like, one column or maybe two column inches thing that says Simon and Schuster test markets the electronic book, and it said um, their first their first fiction book will be by Stephen. King and their first nonfiction book will be by Terry J. Erdman. One sentence with me and Stephen King in it. I treasure. <laughs> I can't remember what his book was, but it was it was one of those moments in history. You know. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thanks again for joining me. <laughs> you bet. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.